This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. You know, as I go through a series like this, through the book of Revelation, some messages we just kind of move forward, and some messages it's like the Lord stops me and says, this is important. This is one that we need to kind of get a handle on, and that's the message I'm going to share with you today. So I want you to, to look beyond just this report card talking about the church in Thyatira, its historical value, and also for the value for today, but to... Uh, learn some encouraging truth that you have God Almighty living within you, that you have the third person of the Trinity who has taken residence inside of you, that nothing formed against you will prevail, that Satan flees because you simply resist him because of the power of Christ that lives in you, and that God has done amazing things through just one person or a handful of people versus what our culture says that this ball is rolling down the hill and there's nothing we can do about it. So I hope, um, I hope the Lord encourages you with this as he did for me as I was preparing it. You know, we've been talking about the report card summaries of the churches. Again, Ephesus has good things and bad things said about it. And Ephesus was the church that left its first love. Smyrna was the persecuted church. And the Lord only said good things about that church to stay faithful and, and hold on to what you have. Pergamos, of course, was the compromised church. It was the church that had married into the state. But even here, the Lord said good and bad things about it. Thyatira, the church we're looking at now, is the corrupt church. It's the church that got its eyes totally off Christ and began teaching horrific doctrine. But the fact even here, the Lord said good and bad things about that church. So let's go through, um, let's go through this letter one more time. We'll just read it, um, breaking it up into various segments, uh, the letter to the church of Thyatira. First, the name of the church. This is what the Lord, this is the outline the Lord uses with every one of these churches. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write. And then, of course, he includes the title of Christ. And he does this in every one of these letters. And everyone is different. But this one, is the only one where he calls himself the Son of God. These things says the Son of God and then describes himself as a God of judgment, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And then, of course, there's the good news, because the church in Thyatira had both good and bad things said about it. And here's the good news, the shocking good news for the church that represents prophetically the Church of the Middle Ages, the Church of the Dark Ages, basically the Catholic Church. It says, I know your works, your agape, that's a, that's a tough one, your service, diakonos, which is the word we get deacon from, it means your ministry, your faith, and your patience. And as for your works, it says that the last are more than the first. So the Lord's looking at this church and saying it's actually getting better as time goes on. And then he gives them the bad news. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, 
who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. We delved into this last week, this, this doctrine of, of, of Greek dualism or something else, Gnosticism that kind of moved into the church. The Lord says, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. And so the Lord gives really bad news. It goes from just bad news to kind of probably the worst bad news of any of these letters. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, a period of time that the Lord signifies as the last half of the, of the uh, tribulation period. Unless, this is what's going to happen, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children or her spiritual offspring or those who believe in her doctrine with death. And even in all of that, I'm going to bring glory to myself because even when I do something as horrifically uh, judging this church, that all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. And then the exhortation, which is what we're going to focus on today. The exhortation. Now I say to you, or now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, defined as, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put no, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And then of course the promise to the overcomer, he who overcomes, and not only overcomes, but keeps my work, how long until the end? To him I will give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like potter's vessels, and also I will give him the morning star. What in the world does that mean? And then the closing. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Which means this isn't for everybody. It's just for a select people that have been chosen to hear this message. In each of these letters, we have the name of the church, which we've already talked about, the title of Christ, the good news. We looked at his bad news. Today, we're going to focus on the exhortation uh, to this church. But before we do, you got to get this. You, you have to get this. I want to share with you some encouragement from the Proverbs. I love the Proverbs. I, um, you know, if there were, if there were just, if I could choose, if, you know, if I was in a prison somewhere and I could only have a couple books of the Bible, I would want the Proverbs. I would want the book of Revelation because there's a blessing promised to those who read that. I would want the Gospel of John, maybe the book of Romans, but I would definitely find myself daily going back to the Proverbs. This is how we live. This is the wisdom of God. And if you read the book I wrote last year, that how we get wisdom is found in more of Christ. You know, Jesus Christ became for us sanctification and, and the wisdom of God himself. And so the more I understand the Proverbs, the more wisdom I see, the more I understand who Christ is. So you need to get this as we share. This is Proverbs 28, verse 1. And it simply says this, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Oh, I got that. That makes sense. People that are hiding something, people that are insecure, people that don't want to be confronted with the truth, they, they, they run even though no one's chasing them. But the righteous are bold as a lion. Well, how bold is that? And what are they bold against? What is this righteous person being bold against? Is it, is it a personal family threat? 
You know, we talk about what a man is, a provider, protector, a prophet, a priest, and all that kind of stuff. Or, or is it just evil in general? Or, like with our nation, is it the consequences of collective iniquity? That, you know, we've been aborting babies since 19... Now, we've made it legal to abort babies since 1973. Then we've been aborting them prior to that. We, we call everything of God bad and everything of the world good. And, you know, we've got this whole gay marriage and homosexual rights and just rebellion running rampant. I mean, what does he mean when he says, the wicked flee and no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion? And who are the righteous? When I think of righteous, I think of a collection of people. We're the righteous, you know, we're like just all of us together, you know, it's me and you and we're kind of all this together and, and therefore when there's not a group of righteous people, then I kind of slink back into the shadows because it's just me. And what can I do? What can you do with this massive system out there that wants to destroy everything about Christ? And then we get to verse 2. Now watch this very carefully. Because of the transgressions of a land, many are its princes. But by a man of understanding and knowledge, right will be prolonged. Because of the transgressions of a land, many are its princes. But by a man of understanding and knowledge, right will be prolonged. In order to understand what we're going to talk about in the church of Thyatira, you've got to get your head around this. Here's what it means. Because of the transgression, that word means rebellion of a land. Have you ever known a land more rebellious than ours? We honor rebellion. We exalt rebellion. If you watch television sitcoms, 14-year-old kids are smarter than their parents. 14-year-old kids want to tell what their parents, you know, you're kind of stupid, you're kind of old fogey and all that kind of stuff. And then when the show ends, of course, they prove to be right. The... The funniest characters on television, the characters that have it all together are the gay characters and the, the characters that hold on to biblical values. They're some sort of sinister kind of deep-seated kind of idiot and, and just rebellion of everything is in our land. And because of that, it says many are its princes, its rulers, officials, chieftains. I mean, we are overloaded in our nation with bureaucratic officials, are we not? Just... I mean, Donald Trump's been talking about alleviating some of the tax code because we're taxed higher than any other nation on the planet because there's all these layers of bureaucracy. Okay. That's the situation. But who are the righteous? But by or through, and here's the word, a man, one, singular, an individual, not a corporate body. A corporate body would be great, but the Lord can move through one man of understanding. Not just any man, but a man that meets certain qualifications, meets certain requirements. A man of understanding. This is a word that's inundated in the Proverbs. It means one man that can discern, to pay careful attention to, to consider diligently. A man that sees the situation, but sees what the Word of God says and, and is able to, to determine the course of action that follows the Word of God, navigating through this cesspool of filth and transgression in our society to bring about a godly result. By or through a single, singular, individual, one man of understanding and knowledge. The word for knowledge here is yada. 
And yada is the same as the word in Hebrew that is translated in Greek, gnosko. It's 1097. A man of intimate knowledge, a man of experiential knowledge, a man of loving knowledge, a man that not only understands, but I have the knowledge of living righteously, of, of doing what is right. That when a society is and a culture and a church and our families and our relationships are heading towards the abyss, that by a singular man of understanding and knowledge, right, justice, the character of God will be prolonged in a land and in a nation. This is just this talking about a, a microcosm here. It's talking about a land. So the question I have is, what does that right will be prolonged mean? And so what I did is I just started looking at a couple other Bible translations. In the King James Version, it says, The state thereof shall be prolonged. In the NIV, it's a man, uh, a, a man uh, with discernment and knowledge. He maintains order. In the ESV, its stability of that nation and that land will continue. In the RSV, its stability will long continue. In the NASB, so it endures. The idea of the fact is, is that when godly men come together of understanding and knowledge, men that are committed to doing what is right no matter what, that it doesn't take an army of men. It takes just one to turn a nation around. Just one. The great awakenings, those great revivals that took place in the 1700s and the 1800s, they didn't begin by through a denomination. It didn't even begin with a church. They began with one man who was empowered by God, and God used him to begin some sort of a revival that changed the face of our nation that we've come to believe can never happen again. And it's not true. It just takes a man of knowledge and understanding for right to be prolonged in our nation. And by the way, that, that man of understanding could be in this church, could be in your family. It could be you. You. Let's look at the exhortation. Understanding that, let's look at the exhortation, exhortation of the church at Thyatira. Here's what he says. He says, now I say, or now to you I say. You know, we've gone from talking about Jezebel and talking about the followers of Jezebel and talking about how wicked they are and all the things you're going to do to those people who believe in this, this perverted false doctrine. But now he switches and he starts talking to individuals. Now to you, I say. Well, who is that? Is he talking about the church leaders? No, he's already dealt with them when he talked about the really bad news. Because the sin in the church of Thyatira was not Jezebel or her teaching. It was the fact that the church allowed and tolerated Jezebel and her teaching to infest the church and begin spewing out that false doctrine, leaving the masses astray. But even in that church, there was a remnant just like in every church in our culture today, there's a remnant that will hold true no matter what. And so the Lord is not talking about to church leaders here. He's talking to the faithful remnant. And as our culture gets um, more litigation begins towards Christian, you will find that there will be a faithful remnant that will rise up. I was watching... Fox News, it was just a clip of Fox News, I think it came on last night, I was watching on the internet this morning, about a man who has a uh, t-shirt printing company, 
And he's, I mean, he looks like a Navy SEAL kind of guy, a real man's man kind of guy, loves the Lord with all his heart. And he, you know, he has homosexual people working for him, and he prints T-shirts for all these kind of things, but there are certain things that he won't print. If somebody comes in and wants to print something that says Jesus is a liar, he says, I'm not going to print that. And he, he somebody came in and, and talked about how bad homosexuality was. He says, I'm not going to print that either because... You know, I don't believe that's the way Christ would respond in this. And so he takes upon himself the right to not print messages that affront his religious belief. And so there was this big gay pride, uh, pride parade that was coming five years ago. And they asked him to print T-shirts for it. And he said, you know, I really can't. Thank you very much. And he's been in litigation for five years. And his response was, I don't care. I don't care. It's... It's cost me a fortune, but the fact is I love doing what I'm doing and we're just going to keep keep doing what, what I do. And I mean, this is happening all over the place and we only hear small, small sniblets of this. I mean, in our nation, God's going to want to raise up a remnant because the primary, the church in general is going to just flow. We live in the Laodicean church age, which means the primary characteristic, not for everyone and not necessarily for you, but the primary characteristics of the church age is to be lukewarm and not care. To think we don't need anything. And the Lord tells us how wretched we are. But there's a remnant in every church age. That's why the Lord gives this exhortation. In every church age, no matter how bad it is, that if you stand firm for the word of God, that he promises to bless you immensely. And I've almost come to the conclusion the true preaching today really only preaches to the remnant. Because those are the people that want to understand what the Word of God is rather than just kind of a feel-good message that makes me you know, feel good in my sin. Now to you, I say, not just to you, but also to the rest in Thyatira. Uh, who are these? And he describes those as the faithful remnant. The ones in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, this teaching and this lifestyle of this prophetess Jezebel, who basically was saying, if you really kind of study it, especially who Jezebel was, that your body is one thing and your spirit is another. And it's like Gnosticism, that, that God exalts your, your spirit, but not your body. The flesh means nothing. So you can do anything you want with your flesh. In other words, I can have all sorts of sexually immoral relationships with my flesh, but it doesn't affect my spirit at all. Paul says it's exactly the opposite. Some sins are outside of your body, but the sin of sexual immorality becomes part of who you are. Remember? Being one flesh with a harlot. And I'm speak, Paul, Paul, uh, Jesus is speaking and saying, I say to you, and not just you, but the rest in this church age, as many as who have not fallen prey to this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan. This is the second time in these letters he's used this phrase. And it, it's a phrase used by those who follow this deception by Jezebel to describe their teaching and understanding. And it's almost used as a banner of honor. You know, we're so close to the Lord that we can actually get involved in the, the deep, sinister things of Satan as light and darkness, do anything we want with our body, sacrifice to Satan, uh, have physical experiences with whatever it is, and it doesn't affect us at all. He says, those who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, as the followers of Jezebel say, and what he says is that I will put on you no other burden. 
Jezebel and her followers claim to be invading the very depths of Satan's domain and yet somehow remain spiritually pure and uncorrupted. I have actually heard reports since uh, Hugh Hefner died that a bunch of Christians actually went to work with Hugh Hefner so they could basically, in the, in the Playboy Mansion, this was their claim, so that they can somehow be light in darkness, kind of like Christian uh, missionaries. And their lives are as corrupt as Hugh Hefner's life is. And it's like, it doesn't work that way. I mean, we're to be in the world, but we're not to be of the world. If all my friends are cussing and telling jokes and, and doing stuff that are abhorrent to God, and I want to witness to them and be part of that group, I don't do that by joining them in their sin. You understand what I'm saying? That's becoming of the world. I'm in the world, but not of the world. They were claiming that they can go down to where Satan lives and the, the deepest, darkest, perverted kind of sin and yet remain spiritually pure and uncorrupted because that's just my body, but my spirit is fine. We have this spirit today in the church. They believed they could experience all the sin of Satan in the flesh and, and remain unscathed spiritually. After all... This is a Gnostic teaching, one of the first great heresies that we even still have today. The Gnostics believe that one was free to embrace the lifestyle of anything, including Satan, and participate in the sins of the body without harming the spirit, since the spirit is all that mattered and the flesh means nothing. Totally contrary to what the Lord says. Romans 12 would lay our, not our spirits, but our bodies down as living sacrifices. It talks about when a man is involved in a sexual sin, it's not just a sin outside his body, but it just melds him together because he becomes like one flesh with that harlot in. This was what they were teaching. And people who were carnal or half-hearted followers of Christ, wow, I can have all my sin and still think that I'm presented faultless at the foot of Christ. It says, now to, I, now to you I say and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. No other burden. What they had to contend with to stay pure in Thyatira was enough for them to have to bear. I'm not going to try to correct any other thing that you're going through. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to cut you a little slack. Because your plate is full right now, which explains why some of the issues that we have with the church in Thyatira were never dealt with. But here's what he says. Now here's his exhortation to them. But you are to hold fast to what you have. Now he's talking to those people who are not following the doctrine of, uh, of Jezebel or have not known the depths of Satan. So hold fast to what you have. Well, what do I have? What you have is what makes you a remnant. You have the truth of the gospel. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. Hold fast to what you have. How long? Until I come. When Christ comes, of course, as we talked about when we looked at the name of Christ, he comes in judgment to this church. But also the Greek phrase for hold fast means it's not easy to hold fast. It's hard to hold fast. I talked to some... Um, I talked to some women who um, are married to lost husbands. I have some of that situation in my own family. And it's hard. I mean, it's hard. It's, uh, it's hard to honor Christ when your husband doesn't honor him at all. I've talked to some um, believers who work 
for corporations that are anything but Christ-honoring and are, are demanding them to do things that totally violate what the Scripture teaches. And that's a tough decision. Because we like to think in our culture, oh, that's church and this is world, but it doesn't work that way because we're sent into our jobs, whatever they are, to be a light in that darkness. And, and it's, it's a tough thing. To hold fast what you have until I come means that when Christ, that I have to hold fast to the very end. To the very end. So in a summary. So we have a faithful remnant that are told to hold fast what they have, which is the truth until I come, or Christ comes. And this remnant is, by definition, small and insignificant in number. You may be the remnant in your family. It just may be you and your husband, or you and your wife, surrounded by a group of unbelievers. Mo experiences that every time he gets together with his family. Are you the only believer with you, in your family? You know, and so I'm the remnant here. And, and but, but, you know, in most situations, it's like he's a, he's a believer in total darkness. Most of us... What we have is other Christian friends who may believe things that aren't biblical and, and have worldviews that are totally non-scriptural, and therefore we're the remnant now within the church, holding fast until he comes. And by definition, if you think about the wide gate and the, uh, the narrow turnstile, Jesus says, you know, wide is the gate and narrow is the path of people who uh, are on this huge road and Wide is the uh, the road of people leading to destruction, and narrow is the gate of those people who are searching and trying to find Christ. And by the way, if you look at that imagery in in Matthew seven, it's like it's like a path and a run, a super highway, and on top of each of those are huge signs that say this way to Christ, this way to eternal life. And the wide path wants to be able to go and do anything they want, but to those on a there are the wide road, but those in the narrow path of the turnstile, pretty much, can only come Christ's way. So if you feel as a remnant that you're small and insignificant and there's nothing you can do, it's not true. Because Jesus told this group that they're to become overcomers. And in being overcomers against all odds, they're promised something, even in the church of Thyatira, absolutely breathtaking. Not to everybody but just to the remnant, to the overcomers, which you can be part of, and me too, in every church age. Here's the promise. And to he, note this now, this is personal. This is an individual. It's not a corporate body. It's not to a church. It's not to a family. It's an individual thing. Now, to he who overcomes, or literally is a true Christian, not a cultural Christian, not an acceptable Christian by our culture, but a true Christian, well, what's a true Christian? Well, if you want to find out what it is, ask a lost person. Ask a lost person how, how what a true Christian should believe. Ask a lost person how a true Christian should act. And then line your life up with what a lost person said you should be. And I think you'll be shocked. A true Christian is someone who has died. And Christ now lives in them. A true Christian is someone who doesn't worry about tomorrow because Jesus says he's already taken care of all that. It doesn't fret about what's going to happen because he's, he's nestled in the bosom of Christ. A true Christian is a slave, a bondservant, a doulos to God Almighty. When it talks about overcoming, here's what John says about that. First John. He says, Forever is born of God overcomes the world. Are you born of God? 
than the promises that you overcome the world or the trappings of the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. But how, what do I have that allows me to be an overcomer and overcome the world? My faith. My faith in Christ, my faith in his word, my faith in his promises. The big promises. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will always take care of you. Who is he that overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And if he's the Son of God, he's come to live inside of you. He gave you another part of him, another helper, another paraclete to live in you forever. That allows us to pray to him unhindered wherever we are. To worship him wherever we are. When, I, when I'm so burdened down and I don't even know how to pray, the Holy Spirit inside of me assists me with groans and moanings and words that I can't even understand. Hallelujah. He's... That's who we are. But we get so entangled with the world that we let the world overcome us because we forget whose we are. Or we say, Lord, it's just me. It's just me. I can't do anything. Sure you can. You're a saint and a son of the Most High God and a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. Does this describe you? Does it describe the church today? Are we overcomers? And if so, if not, why? And if we are an overcomer, how do you know? How can you experience that power in your life? Back to the promise. And he who overcomes, oh, here we go, and keeps my works. Here's the tough part. Here's the part that always rubs us the wrong way. It's obedience, sanctification. Well, I have no problem believing God. I just don't want to take that belief and put it into practical action. Because if I do, it's going to change my business. It's going to change my relationships. It's going to change my attitudes. It's going to change what I've enjoyed doing. It's going to make my sin, sin. And nobody wants to do that. We still want to call our own shots because we live in a land of rebellion. But it's obedience that brings us to him. And keeps my works until the end. I'm obedient to the end. Well, I don't really see things the way God sees it. Is that really, does that really matter? I mean, does the scripture not say that his ways are higher than your ways? Do you really think you're going to be as arrogant as I am and think that I can debate with God and convince him I'm right and he's wrong? It doesn't work that way. It's obedience. This is the part of the Christian life we hate. It's the holiness part. Oh, now you're judging me because of my drinking or my use of profanity or watching R-rated movies or because I'm sleeping with my girlfriend and now you're judging. No. No, I'm, I'm not judging. You have a judge and he will judge you. I'm just sharing with you what the scripture says. How can we call ourselves a sin and refuse to obey him? Jesus said that. Why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do the things I tell you to do? And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end. To him, not to everyone, not to the mass church at Thyatira or Laodicea or Sardis or today, but to him, the promise is only given to obedient overcomers. To him, I will give power over the nations. <laughs> Jesus is talking about participating with him and his millennial kingdom. 
Can you imagine what that's going to be like? And let's, let's assume that we can't put our mind around what a blessing that is. Let's just look at time. The millennial kingdom of Christ is by definition a thousand years. Your rule and reign on earth is probably, let's be generous and say 80. Now of that 80, you spent 25 years trying to figure out what you're going to do. And then of that 80, you spent the last 25 years of that reaping the benefits of what you did during those 30 years of productive service or 40 years. And so we're going to, we're going to take 40 years of strive and, and, and turmoil and heartache and, and, and some temporal blessings that come with that. And, and we're going to compare it to ruling and reigning and participating with Christ for a millennial, for a thousand years. That, that's a bad bet. Wouldn't you agree? And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And then he begins quoting Psalm 2. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like potter's vessel. I mean, the promise to Christ is messianic psalm is in Psalm 2, and he's promising that to us. But how do we receive that? As also as I also have received from my Father. Okay, so the delegated authority that God gave the Son is the delegated authority that the Son gives us as overcomers, as joint heirs of Christ, to be able to participate with him in the millennial reign, and here's the best part, and I will give him the morning star. What does that mean? Well, it's another name or title for Christ. There's a couple of these. But what the Lord is saying, that I will give you the greatest thing I have to give. I will give you the greatest good in all the universe. I will give you me. Me. You will see me, not veiled, but you will see me as I am. Look at Revelation 22, for example. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. I am the bright and morning star. It's just another phrase, a title for Christ. And he promises to those people that I will give you me to the overcomers, not to everyone, but to those people who overcome, to those people who finish and are faithful and hold on and obey my works until I come. I mean, that's like a goal set before each of us in the church of Jesus Christ. We have a goal that I want to make X amount of money by next year and I want to buy my first house and you know, I want to take this great vacation. I want to lose 30 pounds. You know, I've got all these goals out there that we work really hard towards. But the ultimate goal is I want to live a sanctified life to be able to claim these indescribable promises, even given to a church as corrupt and carnal as Thyatira is, maybe church as corrupt and carnal as we are in our own spiritual lives, and he's promised us something absolutely profound, and we fail to set it as a goal. We don't work towards it. We just kind of limp along, seasoning our life with a little, with a little Jesus, realizing all the things we're leaving on the table here. And the day will come. The day will come when you and I breathe our last and everything doesn't matter. Nothing matters anymore except our relationship with Christ. And we will stand before him while he's doling out these promises to those people who overcame and met his requirements. And then it will be profound sorrow on our part. I mean, what's more important 
in the great scheme of things, that having Christ present to us himself as the morning star. Well, then the closing. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I won't go through this. I had planned on doing it today, but it would have taken us forever. You know, all through the, uh, the Gospels, especially in Matthew, Jesus basically gave this statement to only teaching that he really wanted people to understand, the parable of the sower. The end of the parable of the sower says, he who has an ear, let him hear. What does that mean? It means the parable is not for everybody. It's the whole, it's a parable about what salvation is all about. So the parable of, of, um, of the man who sows good seeds and the enemy comes in and sows bad seeds. At the end of that, he that has an ear, let him hear. And he's not speaking to everyone. He's speaking to the overcomers. He's speaking to you that can hear his voice. Not to everyone. It is meant to the few, the select, the chosen. Is it meant for you? Yes, it is. But we have to embrace it. Do you hear what he's saying to you and to all the churches? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, not just to the church in Thyatira, but to every church age and every church, to our church today. Do we hear this message? Before we go any forward, forward, I need to go back and remind you of what we talked about in Proverbs. Because of the transgressions of a land, many are its princes. But by or through a man, one man, you, sitting in the chair you're sitting in right now, through you, a man of understanding and knowledge. Well, if I don't have that understanding, I need to be this man. I need to figure out how to have this understanding and this knowledge so right for my family's sake, for the nation's sake, for just people in general will be prolonged. And the question the Lord was asking me is, could, could that man be you? The question I'm asking you is, could it, could it be us corporately today? Are we willing to pay the price, to meet the qualifications, to be the kind of man and woman that God can use to literally change a culture? He's done it in the past. He sent one reluctant prophet to Nineveh, a city far more carnal than Los Angeles, and he preached this message that half-heartedly, Chuck Missler kind of sums it up by saying, 40 days, you get yours. And God broke this incredible revival out from the king all the way down. Can you do that again? Can the testimony of one person get Washington to fall on its knees and declare God is son? We don't believe it. We don't think it can happen because it hasn't happened in the past. But it's, I mean, it has happened in the past. It hasn't happened in, in our past. But do we even know a man? Are we that kind of man of, of understanding and knowledge? We have lost people in our family. My brother. People in your family, they're never going to get saved. It's never going to happen. I'm, I'm so discouraged. But maybe God's looking for that man that's so empowered by the Holy Spirit, a man of understanding and knowledge, intimate knowledge of the things of God. Gnosko knowledge that God, his right, his truth, his justice will be prolonged. But a man of understanding and knowledge. Question, you know how to become that man. Do you even want to become that man? Is it, is it even on a radar or does it, we feel like it's going to cost us too much? Is it on our list of priorities? Again, I ask this question all the time on a scale from one to ten. 
If 10 is closest than you've ever been to the Lord, which means he was at the top of your priority list, where are you now? I'm a six. Well, that means you got other things clamming in your, your to-do list other than God. Well, yeah, I've got work and I've got responsibilities and I've got situations that I've let my mouth get me into and I've got to fulfill my word over here and I've got all the problems and, okay. And to quote, actually Vic is the one that really brought this to my attention. I've never forgotten it. And he was quoting Dr. Phil. And I, the answer would be, well, for those of you that are sixes or sevens or eights, I mean, how's that working for you? To quote Dr. Phil. I mean, how's that working for you? I mean, are you on top of the relationship with Jesus? I mean, is, is it incredible? Are you just oozing out his love and grace and mercy? I mean, I mean, is, is it good? Or has it been better in the past? Of course it's been better in the past. Well, what do we need to do? Is there a possibility for us going back? And can we recapture what we've lost? How does that happen? A part of it is you have to rearrange your priority list. And it all begins with taking small steps towards him. It's not a huge leap. It's just a tiny step. And the question I'm asking you, are you ready for that today? And if you are, or if you're not, why? What are we waiting for? What's more important than this? I know a lot of you younger people don't know this. Uh, when you get to my age, or Vic's age, um, you will find that all the time you devoted to your company, that they're supposed to take care of you, they don't really care about you. They care about the bottom line. It's a company. You know, it's an it's a artificial entity with a perpetual life. And the fact is that all the things that you devoted into things that you thought would pay off, they don't. They don't. The only one that's going to be totally faithful to you is the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, I, I have, I have a, I have a, I have a great marriage. I have a, um, I think I have a perfect marriage, but I, because I'm married to a perfect woman. But uh, man, I have hurt her, and she is, she's hurt me some in the past. And even though I've been faithful to her and she's been faithful to me, there have been times when. Um, I didn't feel as close to her as I have at other times. I mean, it happens. But I've never felt that way with the Lord. I mean, even a relationship like I have with Karen, where, I mean, it's the same thing with, with like Justice and Haley. I've, uh, you know, I've always, neither one of them ever given me really five minutes of worry or problem. Um, but the fact is that I know I've disappointed them, and I know they've probably disappointed me. And if not, they will, and I will. It's just part of life. But it's never happened with Christ. He's the only constant in our life that is always there. You ever realize that? And we put everything else up there and put him subjection, subjection to our calendar. And how's that working for you? It's not working for me. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of tired being plateaued. Aren't you? It's time. It's time to embrace him for who he really is. By a man of Understand these are the qualifications and knowledge. Right will be prolonged. I mean, God-centeredness. Is that not a worthy goal that demands our best efforts? We say we love our families more than anything, and we're just fearful for the fact that our culture is so bad. I mean, I do this with my own kids. I just fear for Marley and Maya, you know, and Lindsay's kids and my grandkids. How bad is it going to be if Jesus doesn't come when they're, you know, 20 and 30 years old? But you know, I... I can change that. 
You can change that. All the Lord needs is one person, one person that, that understands and one person that has intimate knowledge of him and can, he can use them like a tool in his hand empowered by the Holy Spirit like he did during the Great Awakenings to have right in a nation prolonged. And if not for me at 62, who's looking at the finish line, how about for my kids? Is that not a worthy goal to set aside our selfishness and focus on them? I think it is. Do you? Which brings us to the final question. This is the encouraging part. How do we become men of understanding and knowledge about the things of God? I mean, this is the question I ask the Lord. How do I recapture my life that is so consumed with the things of this world and not with me? I've, this week, I've uh, I cleaned up Justice's office in there, and I found that I have to come down here to have my quiet and devotion time with the Lord, because if I'm sitting at my computer, the temptation for just stupid stuff is overwhelming. When I study, I have my computer on, I've got my logos pulled up, and I'm, I'm looking, and, and you know, I have people coming down the driveway, my phone goes off, there's a couple click of emails, I'll just glance over and see what those are, and I find myself distracted. So I, I've been coming down here, and I've just been locking myself in this room and spending more time with him than I ever did sitting at my desk because, Lord, I'm consumed with just stuff that doesn't matter. Somebody sends me an email, you know, ask me a question. Yeah, I can deal with that question later. You know, a text message or this, that, and the other. But, but I want to put him first. I, I want to recapture that intimacy that I felt in my own life waning a little bit. And it's not that I'm it's not that I'm doing bad things. I'm doing good things. I'm involved in ministry, ministering to other people and preparing messages and counseling people, but not the best thing. And the best thing is face-to-face -face intimacy with him. So I've asked the Lord, Lord, empower me and then send me out. And since I've started just coming down here, it's been incredible. It's just a small change. And a small change is simply taking him and putting number one rather than all the things that demand for place instead of him. You may be asking the same question. How can I recapture my life that is so consumed with the things of this world and the things with me? Is there hope? I mean, can it be done even during these dark times? Yes. Here's what I want you to get. Here's, this is what's so incredible. We serve a God of second chances. Actually, we serve a God of like 30 chances. Have you noticed? You know... And all we have to do is repent or do what he says in these seven letters, irrespective of where we find ourselves personally in these seven letters. And we find that, that everything changes. In the church of Ephesus, the thing he said bad about them was you have left your first love. Steve, you've left your first love. You've, um, you've, um, you're not, you're not as passionate about me as you used to be. I remember when I first saved you that you would do anything based on faith and just run and, and it was, it was incredible. But since then, you've kind of settled down like everybody else and, and just kind of relegated me to this part of your life when I want to be all of your life. Well, to the church at Ephesus or to me or you, what am I supposed to do? And the Lord tells us, remember therefore from where you have fallen when you were ten. And repent and do the first works. Go back, ask the Lord to forgive you, and go back and do what you did when you first got saved, when you were a 10. You know, the, 
the definition of mental illness is to do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. True? If you know what works and it's not working for you now, like the church at Ephesus, go back and do what you did in the beginning. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for a second chance. The church in Smyrna, they're persecuted. They're suffering for their faith and, and things are kind of tough. My husband doesn't understand me and my, my family persecutes me all the time. I'm having a really tough time at work and, and it's really, it's really rough. Even like I just shared with you, the, the, the man who's being sued for five years because he just wanted to live according to his convictions. What am I supposed to do when I'm suffering that way? I, I just, I just want to crawl into my hole and forget everything. No. Here's what Jesus says. Do not fear though those things which you are about to suffer. Well, what am I supposed to do? You'd be faithful unto death. You'd be faithful until I call you home. And if you were here for Jeannie's memorial service, I shared something that I had never heard at a funeral service before, that um, because of the fall, Adam and Eve, that uh, we were separated from God, no longer had intimacy with God, no longer were able to meet with him face to face as he walked in the garden in the cool of the day. And so God cast Adam and Eve out, out of the garden and he placed there at the, at the mouth of the garden this flaming cherubim with these swords going all directions to prevent Adam and Eve or you and I from going back into the garden eating the tree of life and living their sin forever. So how do we get reconciled to God? What are we supposed to do? And I shared then that God gave us a gift, an incredible gift. And everybody goes, oh, Jesus. No. Death. It's the gift of death. Because it's only through death that we're reunited back face to face with our Lord. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. As long as I am present in the body, I can only experience him through veiled glasses. Seeing him like a, my face in a mirror dimly. But after death takes place, I experience him face to face. So the church in Smyrna, don't worry about the persecution you're suffering. Be faithful until I give you the gift. Until I bring you home and meet with you intimately and face to face. So the church of Pergamos. Well, Lord, I've really let all this sin into my life. I've, you know, I used to be, I used to be really on fire for you, but now I've got these friends that are driving me, you know, into sin and I'm doing things I swore I'd never do again. And, and what am I supposed to do? I mean, I'm all caught up in, and living this, this worldly life. The answer is simple. Jesus tells that church, repent. Just repent. Ask the Lord to forgive you. And by the way, will he? Already has. Already has. Jesus' blood covered your sins, past, present, and future. He just requires you to repent. Say you're sorry and repent and have that relationship restored again like Nebuchadnezzar when he was out in the field for seven years and he looked up and repented and God restored everything to him. Just repent. Well, Lord, my life is like the church of Thyatira. I don't believe in things that are all messed up and you know there's no light inside of me. I tolerate sin in my own life and the sin of my family with the sin of my friends. What am I supposed to do? Well, you know the truth. God has saved you. He's, he's put his Holy Spirit in you. Then hold fast what you have until I come. Just hold on to what is true and reject the things that are false. The church in Sardis, which is the dead church that we're going to talk about in the weeks to come. 
They don't have a flame anymore. It's all burnt out. They're just going through the motions. It's just rote memorization. It's not, there's no passion anymore. It's what I don't want to have happen to us. What do I do? Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard how God communicated his life and his truth to you. What a miracle that was. And then hold fast and repent. It's really simple. It can all be changed in a moment. To the church in Philadelphia, which was the missionary church, was the church that was going out and God only said good things about this church. It was the faithful church. Maybe that's where you're at. Well, what am I supposed to do then? What's the admonition for me? Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Wait a second. So, in the Philadelphia church age, I could lose my crown? Yes, by just drifting off like the other ones did. Hold fast. If you're on the, if you're a 10, remain a 10. Shoot to an 11. Because Jesus Christ is coming quickly. In the Laodicean church age, which is the age in which we live, it's the lukewarm church. It makes the Lord sick. It's, it's the saddest of all. I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. Why? Because you say you're rich and wealthy and don't need anything, and I see you as poor, rich, and blind, and naked. Chilling words. But then the Lord gives some incredible encouragement to us today, living, if this is how you're living right now, in this lukewarm, yeah, Jesus, yeah, kind of, I'm kind of a Christian, but you can't really tell by my life. And Here's what he says. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. You be zealous, you be fired up about the Lord, and you repent of your lukewarmness and your carnality and doing things your own way. And here's the most incredible promise. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is Christ knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to... This is not talking about the church. These are individuals. This is personal. This is you. God is knocking on the door. I need in. You've locked me out of your heart, out of the church. You're living lukewarm. Your life in Christ really makes me sick. But I'm telling you, zealous and repent because I'm here. I want to have that relationship. I am making the effort. I am knocking on the door. If you will open the door, then I will come in to you and I will dine with you and let you have that kind of intimate fellowship with me. I don't know where you're at spiritually. Probably in at least one or a couple of those church letters. Remember, the various meanings of those was also no personal. And we're struggling with some areas like this. But we serve a Lord of second chances. And the only thing standing between you and a deeper, intimate, passionate, I am complete in Christ relationship is you. You realize that? It's not him. It's you. He's already provided everything for us. He's declared us complete in Him. All we have to do is reach out and receive that intimacy from Him. By just asking, confessing, and praying, and realign your life in such a way that the Lord Almighty gets glory for everything. Amen? Well, I have committed sins that I can't forgive myself. Got that. But that doesn't mean he hasn't. Ask him. I mean, I, I found that in my own life that, you know, 
when someone sins, when I sin, there's three people I need to ask forgiveness from. One is the Lord. One is, if it's possible, the one that I've sinned against. And the other one, of course, is me. The Lord forgives me automatically as soon as I ask him. True? Totally. It's like cast as far as east is in the west. As Corey Tim Boone used to say, throws it in a, in a lake and puts a sign there that says no fishing, no digging it back up again. If, I, if I've sinned against Karen, for example, and I'm prompted to ask her forgiveness, I will ask her forgiveness. She or may not, she may or may not forgive me. I can't control that. My job is simply to ask her forgiveness. As a matter of fact, the scripture says that if I realize that Karen has something against me because I haven't asked her forgiveness, that I have to not take my offering or my service or my sacrifice or my worship to the Lord. I'm going to set that aside, deal with this relationship first, and then come and worship him. Do you remember that teaching? So she may or may not forgive me. I can't control that, but I have to ask. But the hardest one for me to forgive is me. I drag this stuff back up that I've been forgiven with in the past, and I beat myself up with it all the time. But God is a God of second chances. And when I ask for His forgiveness, His forgiveness is complete. His forgiveness is perfect. And whatever you've done, is whatever's holding you back, whatever's convinced you that God's not going to want to have a relationship with you because of this dastardly sin that you've committed. None of that is true. All you have to do is ask him, and he will forgive you, and he'll restore you, and you can become that man or that woman that God can use to change a nation, to change your family, to change your friends, your neighbors, the people he's placed around you, to be light and darkness. And by the way, isn't that the goal? Let me pray.